Hey, Jason, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Dan. How are you? No, I'm really good. It's great to hear from you. We missed last week. You have um, the busy CEO schedule of a busy CEO. Last, yeah, last Friday was a bit of a crunch Friday, yeah. and I uh, apologize for for that, Dan. I, I, I truly do, and I apologize to the audience for giving them a one less episode. I mean, they were there, and, and, and they were like, "What are we going to do? What are we going to do?" I feel like they had to go watch a, an episode, of, a, a rerun. They're of just, Taxi. they're just, they're just refreshing the page over and over again. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're all right. I'm glad you're okay. Uh, I'm I'm quite fine. Yeah. That's good. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we've got a list of uh, really great news today. Really great. Do we? Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, so there was a uh, there was a tweet. Uh huh. Uh, that came out after this uh, AWS outage. You're aware of the AWS outage. Were you the cause of that? Were you involved in that? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I mean, poor, poor technology decisions were probably the cause of that. Usually, that is the case. Um, <laughs> or they, trade-offs. Uh, trade-offs are the most common cause of that. But yeah, so it, apparently it was a seven-hour outage. Yeah. Um, about the same amount of time that Facebook's outage was a few weeks ago. Amazing. It, uh, yeah, and you know when you don't really realize just how many services rely on AWS until <laughs> until there's an outage, and you're like, oh, I can't do and literally we can't do anything. Um, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't uh, the workout application that I use. I couldn't update it with my sets and reps. See, there you go. And what's interesting is Amazon's share price gained three percent on yeah. <laughs> because of or I mean at the same time as the outage. Yeah. Um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, but in this article that, that's in here, which is on the lightreading.com website, they're talking about how fast the world's transition to the cloud has occurred. And you can just kind of look at Amazon as a, uh, a kind of a gauge of that. Mm. And uh, so if you think about it, to quote the article here, it says, back in 2013, when Barack Obama sat in the White House, the AWS unit was an interesting growth story, generating about $3.1 billion in annual sales. Last year, it made nearly $45.4 billion. Yeah, it's amazing. And there's probably eight years. 70, 80,000 people that work there now. Insane. Yeah. It's insane. But th- there's yeah. some backlash. And um, in a lot of ways, really gratifying, because 12, 13 years ago, when I would tell people, like investors and analysts, how big cloud was going to be, mm. you know, nine times out of 10, that basically lull in my face. And then really? there you go. Now you literally have, uh, you know, where a single cloud provider is as large as all the revenue that IBM's lost over the years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Neil J. McRae. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> tweeted, I guess, around the time of the outage, said, so still want to put your network core into the public cloud? Hashtag suckers. Yeah, yeah, Neil's from uh, British Telecom, and uh, I've had the the pleasure of being on a few panels with Neil, and last time I traveled overseas before the pandemic was actually to see him in the lovely BT headquarters inside the, the city of London. 
And he says, uh, he, this was something that he had tweeted and when he retweeted it during the AWS outage and he said, hope the folks at AWS fix their big problem and relight their big candle. In the meantime, I refer you to this. And that's, that was the tweet that he mentioned. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, there, there are always, there are always outages. There are always interruptions. Nothing is without that. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. And so, I mean, is that comment, um, is that comment like really petty? fair? Is it fair for of him to say that? Of course it is. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, you know, when it comes to infrastructure, is if you know what you're doing, it's always cheaper to do things yourself. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what you're doing, you don't have the people, then you actually have to rely on somebody else. And, um, you know, the thing about it is what you have is the aggregation of talent and knowledge and footprint and software capabilities inside of Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Mm -hmm. where those capabilities needed to exist there for their own reasons. And then, you know, they were kind enough to share the implementation around those reasons with other people and start launching Mm -hmm. these cloud businesses. Uh, You know, the thing to note in general in the cloud space is notice that Dominant players are Amazon, Microsoft, Google. They're not startups. You can't name a single VC-backed startup that is now a dominant cloud player. Mm-hmm. Okay, it was a big boy game from the very beginning. Uh, you know, meaning, uh, you know, even in places like Joint, where we raised hundreds of millions of dollars, clearly wasn't enough uh, to sort of go and do these types of deployments. Uh, it's a it's a kind of area where even venture and private equity would be difficult to sort of back. It required somebody like an Amazon, Microsoft, Google that had a reason to do it themselves mm-hmm. and then go share those that with other people. And um, and uh, clearly they spend the vast majority of time available and up and running and perfectly fine. Uh, and, um, and all the traditional system vendors, Sun, IBM, Oracle, everybody else, Dell, didn't do this. Or the industry. These guys did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so good for them. That's fine. And that's great. And uh, and uh, it does provide this interesting aggregation point for talent and software capabilities. Uh, now, if you are a uh, operator of infrastructure, like many operators are, uh, then uh, you can have sub-suppliers, you can have things, uh, you know, people that you're working with on it. But uh, for things like your network core, uh, elements of it or part of it, you know, could go on a public cloud. Uh, But if you're truly a service provider like that, you'll always actually have to have talent and capabilities within your country and what you're doing to do... um, you know, at least the active, active setup or, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, live part of that. I mean, you, you just, you're not going to be able to get away from that. I mean, it's a little bit where, you know, people that actually own data centers, you still got to own the building and ideally own the land that it sits on. You're not going to get away from that. You may financially structure it in some other way, but, but you're going to do it. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a fair comment, but it's also, uh, you know, at least to myself, a bit uh, obvious. Right. So, yeah, uh, it's like, uh, correct. There are, there's an entire tier of network operators, uh, that, um, 
uh, by definition, should continue to completely operate their physical networks. Uh, and that includes all the sort of relying infrastructure. Um, it, it doesn't doesn't mean that uh, the lessons from what the public clouds have done are not viable lessons. It doesn't mean that there aren't some services that can be used intelligently there. Uh, but I do go back to the general sort of uh, core comment comments, you know, which is really two, and that is that leading end users of hyperscale infrastructure ended up being the hyperscale service providers that are dominant today. Uh, and number two, you know, it is of interest to note that some of these areas, and, and this may be instructive for Edge in a lot of ways, is that some of these areas like cloud, um, the level of investment that has to occur, the mobile networks, the level of right. investment that has to occur, uh, is that um, uh, it's not areas that are really accessible to VC-backed startups. And if you think about this move to the cloud that he's talking about. Yeah. I mean, do you think that, especially he's referring to the public cloud in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that that is something that the smaller operators use as a stepping stone until they get to the point where they're able to either be profitable or raise enough money in order to build out their own infrastructure or do you see it actually as a solution for all levels that that moving to the cloud public cloud especially is something that's just going to happen that inevitably even the bigger players will see the value in that and decide that they don't want to maintain their own infrastructure anymore that it's cheaper or better more efficient to let an expert quote-unquote expert like aws or or google cloud just handle it for them or microsoft uh, I mean, I think, you know, if we go back to some of the things I've talked about before is, you know, you can say a generic word like cloud mm -hmm. or, you know, the way that I've always positioned it is, you know, heading up until, you know, the sort of 2004 to 2011 timeframe, that sort of that period of time, you know, it was clear that a lot of applications up to that point in time were not used by a lot of people meaning a typical enterprise application had maybe five users, you know, at a given mm -hmm. period of time. Uh, meaning you go into a large company and they're like, well, you know, here's our like SAP system and you look at it and it's doing 32 queries per second at peak, you know, even though it covers, you know, 100 plus countries, you know, it's not like it's this cranking away, you know, like, uh, you know, high throughput type system that has to happen. Right. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, applications reached a um, scale you know, because it's fair to say that, you know, in like 2005 when, you know, the top 10 companies on the stock exchanges were oil companies and finance companies, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like right. General Electric and NTT was on there and mm -hmm. Exxon was on there. Well, that's not the case now. The case now is now it's technology companies. Well, at the, at the root of these technology companies, it's fair to say that things like Facebook, or I guess Meta now, mm -hmm. you know, fuck, I'm going to call them Facebook, but like, you know, Facebook... <laughs> Meta book, uh -huh. meta book, face meta, uh -huh. um, and um, uh, but you look at Facebook. <clears throat> um, it's fair to say that their entire offering they give people is their enterprise app, right? I mean, so you have now businesses who have a quote unquote enterprise application that have billions of end users, and that was not the case fifteen years ago, right? It just wasn't. Uh, same with Google. They have a quote-unquote enterprise application, meaning a critical application to their enterprise uh, that's got billions of end users on it. 
Um, and that, yeah, again, not the case 15 years ago. And so what you found was that then uh, infrastructure and applications and everything else like that, because of the literally going from having five end users to five billion end users. I mean, think about that. Yeah. That, you know, there, there weren't, you know, and uh, going from tens of, you know, queries or transactions per second to tens of thousands to millions to hundreds of millions uh, to maybe a billion you know, per second, depending on how sort of like active, who, who knows, that it required a certain industrialization around how you scale that infrastructure to where you could sit down and say that, quote unquote, traditional, meaning almost pre, pre, you know, web scale companies mm. that, you know, at the very least, I could say that cloud, quote unquote, is what traditional infrastructure is not. It started having infrastructure really as largely as its own practice. And the, the two most common characteristics that I would see in it is that it's highly accessible and it's industrialized. And the high, highly accessible part means that you just walk up and you use it. But out of all of the and, and accessibility, and I mean this no different than you know, how does somebody with a disability use your application, right? Mm-hmm. Accessibility is a non-functional requirement around software in there, but it is an interesting non-functional requirement because it affects all these other characteristics. So, you know, for example, your accessibility strategy affects everything you do around security. Your accessibility strategy affects everything you do around quality. You know, so right. for example, remember how there used to be like one-day maintenance windows? Well, if yes. you're a highly accessible system that people rely on, you can't have maintenance windows. Uh, and uh, accessibility impacts the stability of the system, the scalability, safety, robustness, response times, your entire resiliency and reliability model uh, what you need to do from an integrity standpoint, interoperability, flexibility. I mean, you know, you look at a typical, and people forget, like there are, there's like an ISO 25,010 spec around non-functional characteristics of software, <laughs> you know, and it's got um, these things in that uh, there's a long list of things on there. And uh, accessibility impacts all of them. Literally. And so you say, okay, you know, um, um, because you could say, for example, like the compliance of the system doesn't necessarily impact everything. But accessibility is one of these funny things where the idea that you're going to go and give uh, anybody, internal, external, everything else, um, and have a highly accessible system, it's got this cascading effect on, on all these other mm-hmm. non functional aspects of the software that you're writing and how you're doing it and how you're deploying it and how you're managing it. And then, you know, the idea of being industrialized is really that um, the system continues to be broken up in a way where there's this supply chain thinking in it where you're trying to actually do this like Six Sigma Kaiban continuous improvement of each and every part as possible, right? So you have this idea that you're going to continuously improve your technologies, your outputs, your unit economics, and you're going to do all this within your same operational model. And so, you know, this is very different than go and deploy a bunch of servers, wait three years, five years, seven years, and then batch replace a bunch of seven-year-old systems uh, that you would see before that. Uh, you know, It's very different than deploy a one-gig network, and now that 10 gigs mature and it's hit the same thing, same sort of unit cost 10 years later, now deploy a 10-gig network. Um, you know, What you started seeing in clouds was, let's break it apart even more, and maybe let's lifecycle manage 
the memory footprint we have. Maybe let's lifecycle manage, you know, chips more aggressively. Let's, you know, you get down to almost this type of what is the most minimal component that we can basically manage from a supply perspective and how do we actually continuously improve what we're doing relative to aggressively industrializing the introduction of that, that component. So we end up, for me, just this idea that clouds are highly accessible industrialized infrastructure. And then, uh, you know, for people that um, are going into the whole, let's go do cloud, uh, you know, the hardest thing usually, as they say, is that the your current organization mirrors your current architectures. And so if you're changing your architecture, your organization changes, uh, you know, sort of like in that. And then if you manage to do that in a in an okay way, which is why sometimes doing a quote unquote new company that's cloud native, quote unquote, mm-hmm. easier is because the organization is designed to go implement exactly that. Yeah. Uh, but then when you head into, um, okay, now we're going to go do cloud, you know, the other things that people head into then it's like, okay, well, now you're dealing with a distributed system and most people out there are dealing with some compromise around or some trade-off in a distributed system where it's now centralized or decentralized or some sort of policy-based subset of a distributed system, but they're not really sort of sitting there and saying, we're going to go and build a, a distributed system by first principles. Um, that accessibility thing really ends up being a thing around the tenancy model. And as you very well know, once you start heading into users and groups and relationships and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. there's actually a tremendous amount of work you have to do in what your user model is. Um, and you've seen this in the years of, um, of, you know, using something like an Amazon where at one point everybody in the organization had the one Amazon login and everyone would log in as the same person into the Amazon account. And then if you got like a new job sort of somewhere else, you'd have a new Amazon account. Um, there wasn't this idea of, you know, I'm Jason Hoffman. I have a relationship with AWS. Right. And regardless of which organization I work with or where my job is, I'm getting appropriate access to be able to do my job. Mm-hmm. But I have this relationship with these guys too. And so when you start looking at your tenancy model and how you're going to design sort of a many-to-many user model um, and you know how that basically syncs up with everybody else's user models and their own approach to enterprise access and everything else like that, it, that, 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 that gets a, as a, that's an area that's just as difficult as the distributed system part of it. Uh, and then the usual thing I see people sort of fall down in the cloud thing is the fact that now there's a tremendous amount of metadata about all your infrastructure and all your applications that you just didn't collect before. Um, and um, and so and meaning, take something like an API tier for what you're doing. There's this question of well, what percent of your total infrastructure ends up being your API tier? Your like control tier, your control plane mm-hmm. tier of it. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen these funny things where. You know, like when uh, stuff like OpenStack was brand new and doing things in the packet core space, there'd be like five servers for the control plane, one server for the app. And so you're like, well, you know, having like the control plane be 80, 85% of the total footprint's a little much. You know, you have this target where really what you're doing from a metadata perspective and a control perspective should be things like an 8% overhead, 10% overhead, 12% overhead, 15% overhead. You know, if you got you know, like a thousand servers, uh, you know, meaning that, you know, a hundred of them can be used to manage the other 900. But, you know, if you have 900 of them managing a hundred servers, 
little shitty. And so people tend to mess up mm-hmm. their control plane infrastructure and their metadata sort of, you know, infrastructure as well. Uh, and then, you know, the, the point being is that you head into these types of things where you really actually have to have a certain approach to the data model. You have to have a certain approach to the accessibility strategy. You have to have a global network design. You have to have a physical system design. You have to have a compute and data equipment design, a power design and strategy, a data center facility design and strategy, a supply chain design and strategy. And then you have to roll all this up into a global operating model, a global financial model. And then you have to have a security and data privacy design and strategy and a regulatory design and sort of like strategy and what you're going to do from a terms and conditions perspective and the mm-hmm. relationship to everybody you're doing. Right. You know, for me, like even when I've done a lot of, you know, cloud consulting, if you will, like I call mm-hmm. this sort of my, my 10 plus two model. But you're sitting there and saying, okay, um, do you actually like, where's the document that you have around your data model, your accessibility strategy, your global network design, your physical system design, your compute and data equipment design, your power design and strategy, data center design and strategy, your supply chain design and strategy, what's your global operating model, what's your global financial model, how are you securing it, how are you ensuring the privacy of it, the regulatory, you know, like that, that 10 plus two things. Um, that's actually a, like a non-trivial set of documents and strategies and operationalization for any company to go and put together, right? And if you just stop and think about it. And, uh, you know, when you go and you use an AWS, what you're saying is, ah, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and outsource my data model strategy to them. I'm going to outsource my accessibility strategy to them. I'm going to outsource my global network design. I'm going to outsource my physical system design. I'm going to outsource my compute and data equipment design. I'll outsource my power design, outsource facility design. Uh, I'll have to take on about 10% of the supply chain thinking. And I'm going to roll up an operating model and a financial model that really has to do with them. I'm going to go contract with them and basically offload what the regulatory and security design is. That's what you're doing. So, you know, out of the 12 things that you have to go do as a service provider to like have your shit together, you know, when you go use a cloud, you're outsourcing 10 hard things out of the 12. Okay. That's fine. You know, and then if uh, you want to take on more of those, uh, great. And so, and, and it's almost like you, you almost work backwards, you know, in the sense of, well, we have a global operating model, a global financial model around the use of an Amazon. Okay. Mm hmm. But we have security and regulatory requirements that are special, so we go and put another sort of layer on what we do there. Ah, okay, that's great. And then um, what you see in so many of these security issues is, to me, a fundamental problem in software supply chain. Yeah, meaning the way that people are handling software that comes in and the way they're sort of like deploying it and everything else like that. And so as people take on more responsibility for their supply chain, and they even think of the unit and the thing that they're getting from, you know, an Amazon as a supply element that comes in no different than a physical server. Then they get more sophisticated around their supply chain thinking. Uh, and um, really when people get much better, you know, and, and I think for a lot of companies, a good old fashioned migration to the public cloud might be a good way to reorganize your group, if you will, to put in sort of a global operating model, global financial model that is cloud appropriate in there to start redoing what you're doing from a software supply chain perspective and sort of like how you're handling it. You can call that GitOps, DevOps, whatever you sort of want. Those are all elements of that, but fundamentally it's about your software supply chain. And then you start thinking about, okay, well, um, should we have our own facility then and do like a facility? Yes or no? No, we're going to go to someone like a switch and use their facility. Okay, well, they also have a power design in there. 
okay, well, if we're going to go and do that, should we have a different system design that we're doing? Is there something out there, some chip or chassis type or something that somebody has that's different than what an Amazon has? Oh, yeah, we can actually get this point in time. And, ah, okay, great, great. Are we going to have to do our own network in there? Or You know what I mean? So um, so I think it's just uh, it just depends. You know, for somebody like a British Telecom and Tier 1 mobile network operators, mm-hmm. um, they should always do their own shit. And they just got to make sure that they have the talent and the competency to do that. Sorry, that was like that was like literally a twenty minute that's answer. A great answer. <laughs> but, but that's yeah, yeah, great, easy. All right, go ahead. All right, we'll do the next. We'll do the next one. The next one is this link to uh, Telefonica strategy for systems and network evaluation. <laughs> yeah. Did yeah. you read this thing? A lot of a lot of pictures, a lot of images. Yeah, a lot of fixed line too. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I think you know what's one thing I'll point out that's really nice about. <coughs> um, which you may find funny in there. I don't know if you saw that one of the things in there was four point nine G use cases, which I found really. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that's pre pre five G, but I found right, that really just I right. Found, at I the found that really uh, border of five uh, G. I've seen. Uh, yeah, it's four point nine. I've seen. You know, like. 2G, 2.5G, 3G. People. What exactly does that mean? It just means that there's like a intermediary, like there's Uh, intermediary technologies that have shown up sort of halfway to help the next step, you know, sort of if you will. Yeah. Um, But it tends to not be. It's not. It's not something like here's one gig and then here's five gig and then here's ten gig. It's not quite. It's not. It's never been quite like that. What it's been typically is more. Okay, for 4G, there wasn't things like dynamic spectrum sharing, but let's go ahead and start doing dynamic spectrum sharing for the 4G spectrum. And, the and are they spe- doing it because they just can't wait for 5G rollout to be complete? No, They've no, it's have just these be- little features. No, no, it's or- because these things don't like they don't roll out in one big step anyway. Oh, I see. You know, it's like device by device, city by city, you know, country by country, spectrum by spectrum. You know, those things where. Um, you know, if you have a fundamental thing where some 4G spectrum is for 4G, some spectrum is for 4G or 5G, some mm-hmm. spectrums for 4G and 5G, some spectrums just for 5G, right? And so, uh, you know, depending on like what spectrum you basically go and have, but there may be, you know, you think of it where there's like features and functionality for 5G, if it's being applied to a 4G network and 4G spectrum, LTE spectrum, then you might sit around and say, ah, okay, that gives us a faster time to market with some of those capabilities, you know, on that spectrum versus a full like three, 3.5 gigahertz 5G deployment in that country type type sort of thing. So it's, it's more just the application of, say, 5G feature and functionality to a 4G network, but the, you know, that, 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 that kind of stuff, it's not, not sort of shocking. And then, and then people just try to Distinguish that where you say, well, it's not 5G because it's not 5G spectrum and 5G this, but it's also not 4G. It's something better. And and then, you know, someone may say 4.5. They may say, well, it's actually closer. We'll go ahead in this case, call it 4.9 uh, use cases, which, uh, which um, I, uh, I find um, clever. Um, you know, you know, sort of in there. Uh, and, uh, I mean, that's, uh, the first, I mean, I've seen, I've seen 4.5 being referred to, but it's the first time I've seen 4.9, uh, in, um, 
in something. But I, but I think the, um, um, the Telefonica presentation in here is a good one in talking about, you know, for operators that are like a Telefonica or Deutsche Telekom. Um, I like them how? In size or in mission? It, in, uh, in complexity. Okay. You know, meaning, um, you know, they're not just mobile networks. They right. own, you know, sometimes traditional telephony assets. They have fiber in the ground. You know, they own towers. They, they're doing a lot, you know, where they're going and um, actually functioning as a network with many, many segments, you know, where it's got the, you know, the sort of core networks are trying to converge between these. They've got their own sort of systems and what they're using, but they still have the transport networks that are using IP and optical, you know, sort of in there. Uh, you know, they're providing broadband access to end users across multiple sort of, uh, you know, modalities and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and, um, you know, it's not, it's not just sort of a, you know, pure play consumer mobile network. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's much more sort of, you know, complicated than that. And, um, and I think, uh, the, 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 the presentation's a good one where you look at it and you're like, ah, okay, yeah, yeah. These guys, they got a lot of stuff to deal with. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good presentation and they seem to be taking a good, good thoughtful approach in it. You know, they talk a little bit about open RAN and uh, like COTS hardware. And I always mm. see that mentioned. Uh, I mean, is that a big deal? And if it is, why has it taken so long for that kind of trend to, to start? Because it makes sense, doesn't it, over proprietary hardware, over hardware that isn't just something you can get, manage, configure yourself? I mean, is that, why, why is that a big deal? Uh, I think, you know, what happens is, um, uh, it isn't, and it's a rather dated term now. You know, I, I think even COTS is a dated term. It means commercial mm -hmm. off the shelf. Right. Um, like, a, like a computer you could buy yourself. Uh, you know, but people even talk about COTS, you know, COTS components and COTS chassis and, you know, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll go and they'll talk about, um, you know, unless unless you're designing a, a chip, uh, and <laughs> unless you're literally, so nobody really designs their own PCBs or own motherboards. Uh, you know, those those get those get designed by somebody very rarely, and um, you know, outside of like Apple and the Google TPU and some other things, most people aren't designing. Uh, you know, like some compute element to offload some repetitive computational task um, because of course again a good principle is every repetitive computational task should be offloaded in hardware um, so you know if somebody's designing an FPGA or a chip or a motherboard configuration that's entirely unique to their company unless they're doing that everybody uses COTS so you know going and act, acting as if there are so they're, they're no longer non-cops, non-cots options on the market. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, outside of literally a very small list of companies, everybody is using cots anyway. And so, even if I go and look at um, operator networks today, they're using commercially available, like, like commercially available, off-the-shelf systems from, say, Ericsson Nokia Huawei. You know, you and I could go buy these things if we wanted to. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not it's not like there's um, now what they're often using the sort of Koch language should be people should be more precise in their use of it. Meaning, it would be a good idea for a mobile network operator to not have so many customizations with, say, an Ericsson or a Nokia that mm-hmm. they end up with a product line that's lifecycle managed just for them. That's dumb. Right. And, uh, and you know, there, there are elements of what people have where they've gone and made technology choices that are theirs. Um, I mean, a good, good example, um, you know, of this is like the, uh, the story of the Bay Area rapid transit system here in the Bay Area, BART. Mm-hmm. I encourage anybody to go read about BART. You know, BART is a system that was done just for BART. The train tracks aren't even standard width. Well, because they decided to, in the 1960s, they decided to design this like Disney Tomorrowland futuresque next generation transportation system. So they did. Uh, They've ended up with uh, like literally train tracks, the width of the tracks, the cars, the width of the cars, the computational components of it. It's like they're the only place in the world where a train system like this exists from all components up. And so guess what? Okay, you're not COTS. Right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so BART is not COTS. Uh, you look at most 4G, 5G networks, I, I, I'd call them COTS, uh, you know, sort of like in that. And, uh, and so I think... Um, I think in a lot of ways, what happens is people in, and I was having this conversation with a, another person recently where they said, well, you know, but five years ago, you know, we had to work really hard for like three years to go solve X. I said, yeah, but that was five years ago. And it took you three years to do that because nobody else had done it. And then what's occurred over the last two years, it's just become so standardized and so available and open source you, you don't have to like you don't have to do that anymore. So if you came up, if you showed up today with the same problem, okay, uh, it's very standard, and like a college intern can solve this in an afternoon. Mm-hmm. I understand that five years ago it took PhDs two to three years to solve the problem, but today it's a college intern problem. Uh, that's called technological advancement. It's what occurs. <laughs> so, you know, no, but it's true. It's what happens, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so, but what you feel, though, is it's a very similar, you know, it's almost like this, uh, you, we can almost take, and I don't want to minimize people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, right. but it's almost like this post-technological stress disorder, uh, you know, in it, in that, yes, I understand that you have these great war stories, about, you know, this innovation you really did eight years ago. I get it. I get it. But the funny part is that's a war story from the past. It's not necessarily, it's a, it's a lesson for today. It might be sort of here and there. But um, the whole point of the term progress is that you have solved something and you've moved on to the next set of problems. Uh, and um, uh, that's fine. That's what you do. And so I think a lot of the conversations around COTS has been ones where uh, it's like, yeah, yeah, 
2008, I could see you saying it. But mm-hmm. since about 2000, maybe 14 or 15, I don't know why you'd still talk about that as a thing. Mm-hmm. Like okay. maybe you should get more to the, the root cause of like what your issue is, which is like your shit's still sort of a unique unicorn and you need like your own little unique unicorn saddle to ride around <laughs> in your network. Uh, that's the problem. Problem is not your vendors not providing cots. I mean, like literally right. all the telco vendors in the space um, more than 50% of their products are from sub suppliers, you know, from like the component perspective and that type of thing. Uh, it's all cots. So, um, you know, from a pure sort of technical perspective. So I think it's a, I think it's, I think it's just sort of, you know, it's a classic, it's almost this, you know, just, you know, um, uh, you know, it's a bit like this other conversation that's happened the other day. Where somebody was talking about oh crunch time around a deployment, and they're like, oh this crunch time it's like war, and one of the guys on the team said, <laughs> one of the guys on the team said, motherfucker, like, I I've been to war, and this ain't this ain't, this ain't it, right? Uh, we're just having to like work extra hard to like get a deployment done. Okay, it's not war, <laughs> <laughs> but but we have this tendency to always. You know, uh, do that. And I think uh, cots and these kind of things, it's almost rising to this nostalgic sort of issue of the past analogy we like to use where it's really almost a a, a word that's more of a proxy Mm. for like what the actual issue is. Right. Uh, And uh, yeah. Yeah. We didn't cover a lot of the news today, Dan, but we no. still had a hopefully deep, non-repetitive conversation about some things not to, not to sort of like fuck up. But yeah, um, yeah. but I think we can uh, start to wrap it here. I mean, it feels uh, there's still something solid. really like. Well, I mean, like you, we think we got. We Some got Telstra Purple for- that uh, has a fully integrated, flexible, and secure managed public and private cloud solution that they're calling Telstra Hybrid Cloud. We'll just do a like good, a you know, good for them. That sounds like a bullet great. bullet round. You that know, may, yeah, it makes like that sounds like a great thing to do. It's a self serve solution. Yeah, let's go. Can oh. Also, be fully managed. Yeah. Let me guess. Yeah. Let me guess too. Do we got a long list of people doing something private five G? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, like um, who? Well, I mean, hmm. who, who do you think? I, I if think- you had to guess. Uh, if I had to guess who's doing private five G stuff, uh, well, IBM loves talking about it, even though I don't know exactly what they do in the space, but, uh, but they're uh, IBM, Microsoft, Amazon doing more private five G, the big, the big players, the big people. Um, yeah. Is that, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're all uh, in there and they okay. just help you navigate those different ones. That's, uh, what do you, th- what do you think private five G is? What would you call it? Private five G. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, we talked about this a, a little bit, right? In our triple bubbly session, yeah. Yes. We're, we're going to try and get, um, yeah, we're trying, to get, we're, get, we're trying to get Dr. Bubbly on in January. Yeah, we're, we're going to start bringing guests on in January. Mm-hmm. Is what we're going to do. You know, I mean, you think about uh, private 5G, it's you're going to get managed a managed service, and then you're <sighs> going to be able to deploy your stuff into your own private cellular network, your on-premises oh. network, your integrated uh, hardware 
and software network. It's deployed just uh, for you, just for your employees, just for your own people, for your own devices, for your robot arms. That's what we were talking about okay. a okay. couple weeks ago. Right? It isn't, I, I mean, it's, it doesn't include Wi-Fi. You got it sensors. You got, it's different. You got <laughs> sensors. You got endpoints. <laughs> right? I mean... I want to put a sensor. I want to put a sensor in a it's little so thing. It's so sad. It's so sad because you think about it. This the industry is is such that like 5G, the 4G's 5 like these G's have to be a, like a marketing item. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. I don't think the re- I mean regular human beings don't even know what 5G means. They just know I it's don't. like the next thing. Yeah. I mean the funny part is I've worked in the industry and even when I would look at like 4G marketing, I'd look at it and go like, and? I mean, like I'd be driving down the 101. Uh, still the People just want new I'd stuff, I'd be driving down though. the Consumers 101 and the AT&T. I, I was on an AT&T phone driving down the 101 looking at the AT&T yeah. billboard yeah. that had this like 4G and had this rapidly moving thing. and It was super fast. Uh, and then, uh, you know, my call would drop three times. Huh. Yeah. And I'd be like, you know what? Fuck 4G. No, I just, it's, uh, I don't know, what, what's, an, what's, a, what's like an equivalent of this in another industry? You think about it. What, what's a, is there? Um, like what's a, I guess maybe the car industry where they want you to like get a new car. I want you to get a new car, a computer, a new graphics card for your computer. Okay. Okay. But you know, the, the ability to have your own private cell network, I guess that's a, that's a, a big thing to people. It makes sense, yeah. I mean, it's almost one of those. It's more the what, what's the natural evolution of wireless within our enterprise, and how do we start using multiple technologies versus just Wi-Fi or just this? But let me ask: you, is 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 this the first time? Because you know, I'm I'm like not necessarily an expert in this industry, Jason. But join the club. Um, well, I think you are. But the the point is, is is having a private. 5G network, is this the first time we've been able to have a private cell network where we're not able to have a private 4G network? Is this entire concept brand new? No. No, not really. I mean, there was, a, there was at least in the 4G days, there was a bit of the idea that you do like in building. Mm-hmm. You start doing that. But, but I guess the whole uh, option to be and now are these private networks, are they connected then to the public networks or are they completely private? That's optional. So you could, you could connect it to a public one if you wanted. Yeah, it's no different than like having a private network at home that's connected to the internet still. Right. But all, Same concept. Know, like, yeah, you can talk to your printer, okay? But the internet <laughs> can't talk to your printer. <laughs> right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I, that's literally it. Yeah. Yeah, that's exciting, huh? So like oh, do a marketing so campaign around it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could with graphs and images and oh my God. a little form that you could fill out to get more information, get on the newsletter. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, all the rest of the articles that we have, almost except for one, are about private five G networks. And um, TechSpot has one that says private five G networks are becoming a thing, and Amazon's okay. AWS wants to have a say on it. Mm, I bet they do. And they want to rewrite the rules for private five G. Oh apparently. my God. That's, you know, you could apply that to so many things they've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, for example, how they've handled their footprint in China in a way completely different from any other U.S. company by capitulating to the state. <gasps> oh. 
You're going to get some emails now. <clears throat> that was a news item today. I know. I know. Just how literally Amazon worked with a propaganda arm to make sure everything was okay. Yeah. Jeez. That's okay. Uh, I mean, you got to yeah. do what you got to do to make a lot of money and build rocket ships that look like big penises. <laughs> is a plural of <laughs> is, is a plural of penis? What else is a rocket? Peni? Penises. It's penises. It's not penis. It's definitely penises. No. It's not P-I-N-I-I? No. Penine. But what else is a rocket going to look like? It can't make it square. It's an aerodynamic. Oh, a triangle, maybe? A pyramid? I don't know. That's not very practical, I don't think. I think you need a lot more thrust to get that thing yeah, but did you have to put a big bull's velocity? head on it? I mean, like, really? <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> I, mean, I, like I like that they, they just embrace it. They're like, like you know big, what? It could look like a big flat wing. Not if it's going straight up. You want it to look like uh, the things that go straight up. I don't know. I'm not, an, I'm not an expert. Maybe this is why you're not designing rockets. I just know that Jeff Bezos made a rocket. It, <laughs> it looks, looks like, like a giant penis. It looks like a giant penis. No, and I know that wrong. Elon Musk did not. Yeah. And the, uh, the rich record label guy didn't. What's his fucking face? Richard Branson. He didn't Branson. make a big penis. He made like a, like a, oh, like his, a fighter jet. Yeah, thing. that thing is cool with all the cool windows in it. I'm just so you can almost like put that along a spectrum and you have but to But doesn't wonder. his, his doesn't launch. It needs to be like jettisoned off of a plane, right? Or is it a, does it take off by itself? No, it does Are take off Are you actually saying that his airplane cannot get up on its own? Is that <laughs> what you're saying? Unlike no, I think Jeff it can. Bezos's rocket? Hold on. Richard Brand, I got to Google this now. <laughs> I mean, really, Dan? But what is it called? The space plane? What is his thing called? Uh, Virgin... Space oh no! Something? It can it can totally take off on its own. So it, Richard's in good shape. He can he can get up uh, all by himself, <laughs> despite his age. That's amazing. Yeah, that's well, he's rich. It's you have yeah. yeah. It's called the Virgin Galactic. Virgin Galactic. That's it. Virgin Galactic, and it does have other cool windows. And uh, it does. Yeah. It looks if you look at it, the newer one. Is now all like super silver okay, and. But then pull up, pull up the Blue Origin one. Take just take a look at it. All right, hold on. I've seen it, but uh, you're and then right. imagine that thing having William Shatner in it. And... <laughs> 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 no, just look at it. Can you look no, at it? I Can mean... you look at it? This <laughs> the right way ever again. No, it's no. um, it is what it is. You know. Yeah. I love it though. He just he he, he was all in. He's all in. <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> I think I've said enough. Okay. All right, then. I mean, so. No, it's it's all good. Okay. So if people want to get in touch with you, best way to do it, go to uh, go to Jason H. on Twitter, or you can go to livingontheedge.show, click the contact link, send us an email, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you're... If you're an industry uh, analyst, if you're an author, if you're one of these people who are uh, covering this beat and you got something mm. to share with us, uh, you know, do it. We'd love to hear it. And uh, I'm at Dan Benjamin if you want to reach me anywhere. And that's about all we got, Jason. Have a good, have a really good week. You have a, a great weekend. I love yeah, you, Dan. You it's, we'll uh, just really appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you. We'll see you again next week. Yeah, bye. Bye.